in our Sunday morning programming here at Ellerslie. Sunday morning is not all that happens at Ellerslie, of course, but it is a core gathering time we have and uh, a together time for us. And, and what we do on Sunday morning impacts all of us and impacts everything. So uh, this fall, we're planning on having two different styles of service at the same time in our first service. And we'll be uh, renovating our gymnasium, keeping it as a full gym, but maximizing that space envelope that we have there to make it quality space to be used as more than a gym. And we see this as a first step in a bigger campus development that, uh, uh, that we'd like to engage in over the next few years, or at least talk about engaging in. And we believe this is a very important first step so that our physical resources that we have here can help us achieve our vision of bringing Jesus into life in and, so, and from Southwest Edmonton, the uh, community in which largely young families that we've been placed in uh, is, uh, is something that we want to really be sure we invest in without marginalizing or ignoring the rest of us. So make sure you attend that meeting next Sunday night to hear more about that. Um, there's also a book in the New Testament that actually talks about that. It's actually quite parallel to what we're doing in this phase of our church's life. Uh, not building renovations, but the bigger picture. Passing on the ownership of the mission of Jesus, his church, to the next generation. It's the last book written by um, the man that God handpicked and commissioned to lead the church in its expansion out of, out of Jerusalem and into the entire Roman Empire. To break out of the cultural, cradle, uh, the cultural cradle of Judaism in which it was founded. To, to cross the geographical barriers into what we now call the Western world. That man was the Apostle Paul. Whose last stage of life is in a prison cell. Awaiting his execution. Which came about because he had given himself to this mission that God gave him. It's written to the younger man that he's been mentoring, Timothy. Uh, and it's a transfer of leadership letter to the next generation of the church. And do you realize that it's partially because of the teaching of this book of 2 Timothy that the church of Jesus Christ not only survived, but it thrived. And although there's always a danger like any human organization of drift, and Paul had experienced that in his own life and background. But in spite of that, the church of Jesus Christ today is actually fulfilling the original vision of Jesus. It is worldwide. It crosses all cultures, and it's still growing. Powerful. It's a book we need to listen to. So, two questions as, as we go into this. For uh, those of us who are part of the, the older generation... The question is, will we actually trust enough, trust God enough to entrust the, the vision to the next generation, even as some changes are made? Will we see the bigger picture, and will we affirm and remind each other of the bigger picture? Second question for those of us who are younger, will, will we do the work of seeing, of owning of believing the bigger picture, God's big picture, and not just succumb to the loudest voice in the world around us or the latest big thing. Will we own God's vision for his church? You see, as, as changes are made, the most important thing to remember, to realize, and recommit ourselves together to is what must not change. 
for the church to be the church. God's own people. People, as, as Peter says, belonging to, owned by God. Not just people using the God idea for their own purposes. So, with that as a context, background, turn in your Bibles or your Bible app to uh, the book of 2 Timothy. The second letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 1. It's, in, it's one of three letters towards the end of the New Testament that we call pastoral letters. Personal letters from Paul to those who are next generation leaders. So the, those three books are 1 and 2 Timothy and then the book of Titus. So 2 Timothy, the middle one of those books. Um, this morning, we will look at the very first section of chapter 1, the first seven verses. And as we read this section, I, I'd like you to be asking yourself, What one word describes the overall tone of Paul as he writes this? What appears to be his own inner frame of mind, his attitude? What is the the tone of the messaging he sets for this book in the first paragraph, okay? And I'm going to ask you to pop out what word comes to your mind, so think about it as we read. 2 Timothy 1, beginning of verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God, or for the Spirit God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self discipline. So, what word came to your mind as to Paul's inner frame of mind or or, or the tone in, in this section? Give me a word. Inspiration, okay. Thanks, yeah, that's there. I heard one here. Dedication or passion, somebody in the first service said. Encouragement. There we go. Is it optimism or pessimism? Is it confidence or doubt? Is it positive or negative? It's optimism, total optimism, isn't it? It's way high on the confidence side. Prison cell? Ha! This letter has positive written all over it. But as you read this first paragraph, and for some of you who know a little bit more of the context than just this first paragraph, as you think about the man to whom Paul is turning over this enterprise, is he turning it over to a man who is optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Does Timothy exude confidence or doubt about his own ability? Paul is optimistic and confident. Timothy is pessimistic and doubtful. Now, just saying, we're going to look at it a little bit later, but lack of confidence is not necessarily a bad sign when it comes to leadership. It actually could be a very important sign. Tuck that in your whatever. So it's important to see two things, even before we dive into the details. Three things, actually. Three things that Paul's confidence is not in. Number one. He's not confident in the environment that he sees around him. He will not say in this book, 
Come on, Timothy, open your eyes. The future is bright for the church because the world is such a receptive environment for the church. No, as a matter of fact, he's going to say in the opposite if you look forward to chapter 3. And speaking of which, Paul's confidence is not in political solutions. Timothy, your job is not to convince the powers that be that they have to make laws that are friendly to the church. Not once do we find that mandate in these letters. Do we need to try and influence the powers? Well, of course we do. But it's not about fighting and demanding. Paul's confidence is not in political solutions. If that was the measure, Paul would be the most pessimistic and doubtful guy in the world because he is sitting on death row because of these powers. He's not saying to Timothy, Timothy, if you do your job, maybe they'll let me go. No. Third, Paul's confidence is not in Timothy. You know, some of the... Some of you in the next generation, the ones who will become the leaders of the church for your generation are right now actually doubtful about the future, lack confidence in your own ability, and you are doing what it seems that Timothy might be in danger of wanting to do. You're sort of be hiding behind that excuse. You're Timothy's. We're going to spend most of our time this morning reflecting on, exploring the meaning and the significance of one, the one phrase in this introduction that sets the tone, for the, the tone for the entire letter. The one phrase that gives the foundation for Paul's confidence in the future of the church, his optimism, as he is forced to turn over the reins of the church because he has been marginalized. What's his leading line in this book? Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God... If you know Paul's story, you know that what he's saying here is, I'm here not because I grabbed hold of the reins. I didn't want them. As a matter of fact, I was a persecutor of the church. I'm here because God gave the reins to me and he grabbed me first. And that was confirmed and affirmed by those who are called apostles and they named me as one of their number. I'm not proud of that. It actually humbles me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the standard of, or in keeping with, or for the furtherance of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Think about that. Think about that. Here's Paul facing his death. And the first thing that comes off his pen as he begins this letter to Timothy is not, you know, bro, we live in tough times. It's a cruel world out there. When you see that, just think about me. It could be worse. <laughs> not at all. It's, hey, what I want you to think about me is not that life has been unfair to me. What I want you to realize is I am the most privileged man in the world because God entrusted me with the message of his promise of life in Christ Jesus. For those of you who know a little bit more about the story of, of how the church came about, God's strategy, in, or for the rest of us, God's strategy in choosing Paul was actually quite brilliant because Paul was a highly trained Jewish scholar. He was a brilliant man. But he wasn't just a bookish scholar, a theoretical kind of guy. Paul was also a passionate, boots on, boots on the ground, mix it up and make it happen kind of guy. Paul, Paul, actually had a, a th- Paul actually left his world, the church, with a threefold legacy. Number one, he tirelessly and fearlessly planted churches throughout the Roman Empire from Jerusalem, major cities and smaller cities, all the way to Rome and perhaps even beyond. He planted a lot of these churches. Number two, 
He led, as we said earlier, in, in, the, in the church's ability to, to break out of the cradle of, Druce, of Judaism and, and, and show that the message of Jesus really was for all peoples. And number three, the third piece of his legacy is perhaps just as significant, if not more so. It's why God's choice of Paul as a Jewish scholar and not just a passionate entrepreneur is so significant. You see, Paul was the one who framed for the church the core message of Jesus. Paul was the apostle who led in articulating and clarifying the nature of what we call good news, the message of Jesus, the gospel that the church was given to steward. And here in this introduction to this final letter, he writes, we have in this first phrase a summary of this gospel, the core messaging of the church, the foundation for his optimism, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So this morning, I'd like us to see and I'd like us to help us believe two things about these, this phrase. And when we get out of the rest of this opening paragraph, as we read it in the light of this phrase, two things that are lenses, perspectives for each of us individually in our own pursuit of knowing God, two things that are attitudes and perspectives that I would, I would like all of us to, to help each other adopt together in order to be ready for tomorrow. Two words, promise and life. Let's think first about that word promise. Let me remind you, when, when we think about words, words in, in any literature, but especially words in the Bible, in order to experience the impact of what those words are intended to have, let me talk about how we are to understand them, how we're to feel them. You begin understanding a word by thinking about that word right. And the question we need to ask is not, what does this word mean to me? That's the question we often ask in our, in our reading of the Bible together, isn't it? What, what does that word mean to you? Sorry, folks, that's irrelevant, really. The question is, what might this word mean for me if I really understood what it meant to the person who wrote it? That's the question. Well, yeah, but that's hard. Well, not really. With most words, it's not. Using a very simple Bible program on the internet, in about two or three simple steps, we can discover that it is this word, promise, that Paul uses to articulate a, a penny-dropping experience, an, an aha moment, a watershed idea in his own understanding of God and the significance of the good news of God in Jesus. We, we, we find that in the book of Galatians, where Paul is trying to help a group of churches that he's established, whom he left, and about whom he hears have gone back to an old way of thinking, a way of thinking that Paul is very, very familiar with as a Pharisee, rule-based thinking. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. Galatians chapter 3, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established if you've done something in court and signed it you can't just change that so it is in in this case with the good news of God and Jesus 
the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Who is Abraham? The father of the Jewish nation. Scripture does not say, says Paul, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to and, your, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. The promise to Abraham refers to Jesus. That's what Paul says. And then he goes on to explain why that's significant. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later after the promise to Abraham does not set aside that promise to Abraham because it was established by God. It doesn't do away with the promise because, he says, if the inheritance that we have in Jesus depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. A little complex, but let me just say one of the most significant things that means. As a Pharisee, what has Paul grown up seeing as the center of it all? Law. God's law. Keeping God's law. We're screwed up because we didn't keep God's law. Because we don't keep God's law. We gotta keep God's law. But we can't. Pharisees were guardians of the law. What are Christians known for? Sadly, too often Christians are known to be people who point out to people what they're doing wrong, where the world is going wrong. But what Paul sees here is this. Wait a minute. Before, 430 years before God gave Moses the law, our people, God's people, were created, were bound together, not by a constitution and a policy manual, not by a law code, before the law, which was real and important, but prior to the law, above the law, underneath the law, is a promise to our great forefather, Abraham. That is our leading edge. That insight totally changed how Paul viewed God and how Paul saw what Jesus had done and how Paul, from his prison cell, sees the future of the Jesus movement. Do you know how I know that's what he was thinking? Because he tells Timothy in the very next chapter, chapter 2, verse 8, remember, I may be chained, but don't you get the humor in that? They think they can stop the church by chaining me up, just like I used to think I could stop the church by chaining up church leaders. But you can't chain, chain up God's word. And what is he thinking about when he says God's word? In the book of 2 Timothy, we, like, we, we think of, when we say God's word, we think of the book, the Bible. That's not what he thinks about when he thinks about word in the book of 2 Timothy. You can check it out as you read the, read the book of Timothy. Just circle every time he sees the huge word and see what he's talking about. He's talking about the good news, the promise. You can't chain up the promise. Now let's stop right there for a minute. What is one word that we should want this church to be known for? If there's a future for us, promise is one word we have to make sure remains a core quality in our environment. Not, not a promising environment in the sense that it's a place with potential sometime in the future, but, but an environment in which people will sense, this is a place where I can feel, this is a place where I can know there's a God of promise for me. 
in the way in which we act, in the way in which we lead programs, in the way in which we talk about this church? Do we exude an atmosphere of promise? That's a, that's a good question we should use occasionally to evaluate how we're doing. Do people feel this to be a place of promise? If you ask people, what one word would you use to describe the culture you feel here? Would anyone say, it's a culture of promise? As I think about that, I'm reminded of a story that I've told many times before, but it, it's so powerful for me. In, it, it, it was powerful for me when I originally heard in terms of what I wanted an atmosphere of, of the place that I was in. The story of is, a, is of a Texas rancher. Texas with its big ranches. This Texas rancher heard there was another country somewhere in the world called Australia, and they had big ranches. So, of course, he had to find out how big their ranches were. He went down there, and he went and said to somebody at the airport, where's the biggest ranch in the area? And they pointed him to a certain place. So he took his rental, and he drove out there, went to this ranch, and he says to this rancher, how big is your ranch? I want to see how big your ranch is. And so they got into a vehicle and they drove. And they drove all morning. And finally the Texas rancher said, now wait a minute, I see lots of land, I see lots of livestock. But, but where's your fences? The Australian rancher looked at him and said, this place is too big for fences. We don't build fences. We build wells. The livestock will always come back to the well. Folks, what we want to do, even as we work on our building, is we're creating wells to draw people into an atmosphere of promise, to help each other see the God of promise, facing a life that is so much against us in every way, so much fighting upstream. God is a God of promise for us. So I have a little bit of an assignment for us. Uh, just to help in this culture building thing, uh, would you go to two or three people, maybe four if you want some bonus marks, and just say to them, you know what? You are one of the people that makes this a place of promise. Somebody that you've, that you've noticed, and, and just say to them, you know, I love working with you. I look forward to coming because you make this place feel like a place of promise. There, there are so many people that I appreciate for them in between services. I, I said to two different people, you know what, I love coming here because you have an attitude of promise. Would you, would you do that? Some of us here are now starting to feel this is all just a little bit too feely, flaky, and airy-fairy, right? We need to move on to the second word which clarifies what the promise is all about. It's not just about an environment with a feeling of promise. It's an environment that has a key and powerful promise. I have a consultant friend who helps organizations, primarily nonprofits and charities, access funding, government grants and corporate philanthropic dollars and sometimes private donations. And, and the first thing he asks these, these organizations when he starts working with them is, what's your promise? What's your promise? What is it that you'd like to be able to look your constituency or your community in the eye and say, this is what we promise you. 
Do you know how insightful that question is? Do you know how focusing it is? If, if you know your promise, if you believe in your promise, you know your vision. Your promise guides you. You've got your passion. It's what you look for and it, it, it's what you make as a priority. What is God's promise that creates an attitude of optimism in Paul that he wants Timothy to get as he takes over the reins of the church for the next generation? The promise of life that is in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus alone. What Paul is doing is he is summarizing the message. Actually, actually he's summarizing the entire Bible up in two words. There, there are two one-word summaries of the Bible message. If you look at it from, from, if you're looking up, the message is one word. It's Jesus. Jesus is, is, is the, 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 the entire Bible message, the story is moving to Jesus and then from Jesus. But if you're looking at it from the human perspective, looking down at us, it's this word, life. Life. What was Jesus' message? Toward the end of his ministry, ministry career, as he summarized it all up, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to know the path, come to me. If you, if you want to pursue the truth, come to me. If you want life, real, rich life, it's me. John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. That's Jesus' promise. That's our business. Bringing together Jesus and life. That's it. We bring Jesus and life together. That, that should be our promise. And in the end, everything less than me, says Jesus, is going to rob you of life in some way. If that's what you focus on. It's going to keep you from the life that could be yours in some way if that's what you're demanding. Got any life robbers? What's your life robber? Someone texted me this picture this week from a magazine cover. Mom with the cutest little monster in the world saying, I wish I never had kids. There, I said it. <laughs> and underneath the picture was this caption. Trapped, suffocated, and fed up, why more and more women are no longer afraid to admit they hate being a mom. Even the best, even the most positive things in the world can become life robbers. Right? What's yours? Jesus says, I am not a life robber. I am the one who comes to give you life. A life that can only be characterized as fullness in the middle of the things that you feel are robbing you of life. Isn't the promise of life the central storyline of the Bible? The entire Bible? It begins with creation as a garden in the middle of which is the tree of life. And as that life is lost, right there, the promise begins. God says to Satan, there will be one who will come as the seed of this woman, bruise his heel, but that seed will crush his head. And the promise is given. The rest of the story moves toward the climax in the final chapter of the final book of the Bible with God's people eating from the tree of what? of life, and drinking freely from the river of life. That's the promise. Now let's look once again at, at this word and ask the question, not what do you think of when you think of life, but what's in Paul's mind as he talks about the promise 
of life. And we're going to review something that we looked at actually almost exactly four years ago today. Uh, you see, there are three words in the New Testament, uh, in the language in which the New Testament was written, the Greek language, and three words for life in the New Testament. Each one of these three words, generally speaking, refers to a different dimension of life. Uh, New Testament scholar James Edwards wrote a very helpful ar- article called, it, uh, called Life in Three Dimensions, in which he shows how these three words are often translated in the Bible and how these three words actually point to three what he calls cardinal distinctions about what it means to be human. The first word for life in the Bible is bios. Now, even if you're only semi-awake, you'll recognize that word as, as the word from which we get biology. Yeah, biological life. Edwards calls this level of life, life as quantity. It's the easiest kind of life to talk about because it's mostly not too hard to measure. How much we weigh, it's getting harder and harder for some of us to measure. How many heartbeats per minute, our blood pressure, our brain power. Not only is it not that hard to measure, it's actually relatively easy to explore. Now, if you've given your life to the study of biology, you might want to challenge that, but I'm sure you'd agree that compared to nebulous things like, well, like psychology, which seeks to explore other elements of what we call life, but biology is is more definitive, concrete, right? But in the language of the Bible, uh, bios refers to more than just what we call biology. Uh, It includes things like our financial assets, our possessions, the tangible stuff of life. For example, uh, in, in the story of Jesus, we're, we're told that the, this woman at the temple, about this woman at the temple treasury who cast in her two coins. What did Jesus say about her? She gave her entire bios, her entire life. Everything she had that could outward, be outwardly seen, all her possessions, her, everything that could be measured. That's bios. Now in the Western world, this is often the main way we have come to look at life. As a matter of fact, the premise of the modern scientific paradigm is that we can reduce all of life to atoms, to bios. It's what's behind the philosophy that we call materialism. The material is all there. Bios is all there is, right? Now, as Edwards points out, although bios refers to life at the surface, it's not just talking about life as superficial. We shouldn't get that because it's what we can measure Though, the the bios rule of life is always more is better. More good suppers, better mom or dad. More wins, better coach. More points, better player. More friends, better person. More votes, better politician. Higher grades, better student, right? The key question is how much? Now, this life's not wrong. It's not bad. It's, it's the context in which all of life is. But more and better bios does not lead to fullness of life, to quality of life. And some of us are here because we pursued that and we realize it's not working. But if it's all we live for, well, in, in a parable about our life as different kinds of soil, Jesus diagnosed the problem with this kind of life. He says we get choked by the pleasures of bios. 
if we pursue it, it actually chokes us from getting the kind of life that we want. As a, as a matter of fact, it's often when bios level of life does not deliver that we're, that we're led to explore a bigger picture. When Jesus says, I have come to have life and have it to the full, when Paul talks about the promise of life in Christ Jesus, bios is not the word he's using. What was Paul's bios? Prison. It's in spite of his bios state that he's optimistic of life in Jesus because it's way bigger than that. There's a second word for life in the Greek language used in the New Testament, and it is suke. And if you're just a little bit more awake, you will recognize that this word in the Greek language is the word from which we get psychology. It refers to life as quality. And the social science types among us are saying, I told you so, psychologists are obviously a higher life form than biologists. The question is not how much, as in bios life, the question is how well. It's not about outward things, it's about inner attitudes and thinking, things like thinking and feeling and, and attitude. We use words like heart and soul to talk about this kind of life. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, this word, suke, is often translated soul. It's not as easy to describe nor to measure, although increasingly we try. This is the word that Jesus used when he said, life Suke is more than food and the body, more than, than clothing. Suke is always more than bios. It's about personhood, not just biology. When we search for meaning and purpose and significance and happiness, we're looking for suke. But, interestingly enough, this is not the word that Jesus uses when he says, I have come that they might have life and life to the full. And it's not the word that Paul uses when he talks about the promise of life in Christ Jesus. And those of us who have pursued this to the nth degree will say, you know what? There must be another theory. There must be another approach. Uh-uh. There's another level. In the New Testament, there's a word, zoe. This is the word Jesus uses when he offers life. And in the Gospel of John, which is all about the life that we have in Jesus, it's used 35 times. It's the word that Paul picks up from Jesus and uses here. Bios is life as quantity, that which we have. Suke is life as quality, what we make with what we have. Zoe is another level yet. It is life as quintessence. It is true life. And the question, as Paul will ask a number of times, is how full are you of this life? By the way, I don't know if Paul had the manuscript of his first letter to Timothy in front of him, but as he writes this second letter, he's picking up on a word that he's ended the first letter with. In chapter 6, verse 19 of 1 Timothy, talking, talking, uh, helping Timothy talk to people who have all the bios there is and are focusing on them, their assets... He says, tell people to be generous with those assets, with that bias, so they can share in the life that is truly the way. So, so often we pursue quality of life and all the things we think of as quality of life, and we still say there's something more. There is, but it's not found in bias or suke. It's not found in simple quantity or even quality of experiences that we pursue. In the Bible, zoe is used only of a God kind of life. It has only one source, 
God alone. It is the life of God and the life that God shares with people. It refers to how God created us to live in the first place. You see, when, when in, in the book of Genesis, when it says that God formed humans out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils and he became a living being, when that Hebrew phrase is translated into the Greek, it's zoe that is used. God breathed his life into humanity. When the Gospel of John uses the phrase eternal life, always, every time eternal is used with life, it's this word, zoe. It's about more than more. It's about completeness, about fullness of life. And one of the things that happens when we have zoe is that we have the resources and the capacity to have a realistic perspective on both bios and suke and what they can and can't deliver. It's this kind of life that's foreign to human existence as we know it because it was robbed from human existence in the fall. Which is why Paul talks about us being dead by our natural human condition. We're not dead in the sense of bios or in the sense of suke. We are dead in the sense of zoe. Zoe is the kind of life we gave up when Adam and Eve walked away from God in the garden. This is the kind of life that Jesus had in his person and came to give to us. Zoe is always and only linked to Jesus. That's why he says, this is eternal Zoe. That they might come to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. As John says a little later, this is the testimony that God gave to us eternal Zoe, and that life is in his son. Whoever has the son has this life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have this life. And Paul picked on that, up on that when he says we were, we were buried with Jesus in baptism. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we shall walk in newness of life. Last week we focused on a big word, hope. Big because it's what we're all looking for. Along with other big words like peace and joy and fulfillment and love. The way we tend to define these words, we're still thinking on that suke level, isn't it? But those things only come through the zoe, true life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus Jesus came onto the scene of human history and announced himself as the one, the one and only by whom life is defined, in whom true life exists, and from whom true life flows. So, so what does that have to do with, with this next generation thing, Paul turning over the church to Timothy and, and Paul's optimism? Well, let me just talk very briefly about two levels. Um, let's talk about a, a, a body level. Way back in the 80s, 30 years ago plus, somebody had a vision to buy, what, six, eight acres of land on the edge of a farmer's field outside of Edmonton. I don't know what everyone thought who had the vision, gave the money, some of those are, you're here today, and did the work of creating this campus, but I know what God was thinking. God was thinking that one day these fields would be neighborhoods, and his plan was to have a group of people ready in this place to further his promise of life in Christ Jesus for this community, in this community, and from this community. We need to become as effective as possible using the resources that we have as effectively as possible for that goal. 
But it, it's, that's the corporate level. But it, it's to the personal level that Paul takes it. You see, every single one of us who are here this morning are here because we are looking for some definitive promise from God. Or because we know we need regular affirmation about that promise from God. Will you ask God to open your eyes to see the bigness, the richness of his promise of life for you? As Paul ends this paragraph, he says, Timothy, you have that life. I know it. And you know it. And for that reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. What is the gift of God in this context? Sometimes we get confused because we read that verse, gift, in another context and it talks about abilities and stuff like that. That's not what Paul talks about here. We know that because the next verse tells us what the gift of God is. It is not some special giftedness that Timothy has because it goes on to say, for the Spirit God gifted us with, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Jesus' Spirit, is the gift. This is not some gift from God's Spirit. This is God's Spirit. The Spirit of life Jesus promised when he left. That Spirit, because you have received Jesus' life, you have Jesus' Spirit living in you. And by God's Spirit, Timothy, instead of shrinking back from responsibility, just remember, it's not at all whether you feel ready. You are ready because you have the power of Jesus' spirit of life in you. You have the spirit who empowers, not by might or by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So do not let fear be the thing that stops you. Or do not use the excuse. Oops, I'm going to get a little personal here. No, I couldn't do that. I'm not ready. Timothy, you're ready. You have the spirit of life. You have something greater that's greater than any power against you. You have the spirit of love. The love of God has overcome the barriers of your heart and that love will conquer through you. Just love as you lead, Timothy. Don't be afraid of power. Just make sure it's the power of love. Let it overcome that excuse that says... Someone else has to do it. I don't have time. Love makes time. And the other excuse, well, you know, I don't know enough. You have the spirit of, that word self-discipline is, is an interesting, a hard word to translate because it's, it's really speaking of your thinking process. You don't know enough. But you have the mind of Christ. And as you know the word of Christ, you will know what it is to do. I remember when I was 40 years old, I was tired. I was tired of working so hard. I was tired of the weight of leadership. 40 years was quite a few years ago, folks. And I started dreaming of retirement <laughs> And for several weeks, in my spare moment, I started dreaming of, of a retirement life with a fifth field trailer with a big double cab pickup, just exploring all of North America. I was dreaming. 
a bios dream. One morning, I was standing in the shower, and I wasn't singing. And I remember exactly, standing there, what hit me. It was like, Mel, you're only 40 years old. You will not be retiring for another 25 or 30 years. Buck up. And there, this moment, well, overwhelmed is the only way I can describe it. But before I was out of the shower, my whole outlook had changed, and I said to myself, self, what are you thinking? You have in your possession the greatest promise the world has ever known. You're in a role I've given you to hold out the promise of Zoe in Christ Jesus. Why in the world would you even want to retire? I thought back to that statement from Paul that I've tried to own and live all my life. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone complete, full of life in Christ. To this end, Paul says, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which works so powerfully within me. And for 25 more years to this point, 20 more years to this point, God has given me that energy. You see, if you have a powerful purpose, you'll have the power. And now Paul passes it on to Timothy. Timothy, you have the greatest purpose, the greatest promise, and the power of God's Spirit will give you strength. Just go for it. I still believe that's true, don't you? I do. So the big question for you is have you claimed from Jesus the power of Zoe? A full, rich life, a life you can't find through bios or suke, but a life that informs how you think about everything and a life that gives you the power to conquer whatever is against you in this world. Do you have that life? And number two, are you living the promise? Are you living out the promise? Are we together giving everything we have to live for this community, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus? Together for tomorrow. Lord, we recognize that it's so easy to be trapped in bios and, and suke kind of living because that's what we can see and feel. We thank you again for the, the, the powerful way in which you have delivered on that promise in this world, in Jesus, for us. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to be known as environment that is the promise of life in Christ Jesus for everyone. Help us to see it, help us to live it, help us to share it together, and help us to share it with everybody that's in our networks and neighborhoods. In the powerful, wonderful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing ourselves out with the power of that promise.